Finish present Doctor Who Short Trips, The Piltdown Men by Paul Dale Smith, read by Hugh Ross. I can assure you it says everything there is to say about the state of the sciences that even an educated man cannot tell the difference between the most groundbreaking theories of the day and the ravings of an absolute lunatic. Thomas Huckins was one of the most preeminent biologists of his day and even though that day was not perhaps as recent as yesterday, he should not have required my opinions to help bolster his own on a question of biology. Bertie, I can't get it to balance no matter how I look at it. Thomas told me, as we travelled to his home in Uckfield. Dr Smith's theories are impossible to take seriously, but he states them like long-acknowledged facts, and I have no other explanation that fits the evidence. If a man declares his theory is scientific with enough bombast, I pronounced airily, then that should be reason enough to call it fact and leave it to ossify in peace. From the look in his face, I knew I had offended him. I'm sorry, Thomas, I sighed. I was not so far gone yet that I would lose a friend to make a point. I think perhaps I'm not the man you need. My recent works demonstrate the way my mind has turned all too well. Bertie, your recent works are exactly the reason you are here, Thomas answered. Once I felt there wasn't a thing mankind couldn't achieve, harnessing the power of science. Now I just see closed minds leading us all to impending doom. Bertie, your recent works are exactly the reason you are here, Thomas answered. You will understand when you hear the doctor's theories. Thomas was, as I've intimated, a biologist of some renown. It was this renown that had brought him the specimen, and it was the specimen that had soon after brought the doctor. Dr. John Smith, this is my friend, Herbert George Wells. I could see why Thomas was wary of accepting the man's theories. His hair was unkempt, his demeanour clownish, and his bow tie was held on with a pin. If he had so much as told me the time, I would have assumed it was some kind of joke. Mr. Wells, my, my, he said, his eyes a twinkle. I assume you want to see our Morlock with your own eyes, or perhaps Beast Folk would be more appropriate. He stood to one side, and the specimen was revealed. I want to accurately describe the sense of revulsion I felt at seeing that creature. It was dead. There was at least that consolation. But even in death, it was a misshapen parody of a man. I can see why the doctor referred to the beast folk. If Moreau had lived, this was exactly the kind of mockery that he would have created. It's called an Euanthropus the doctor intoned solemnly behind me. It's a, a hybrid creature you can probably see, human and orangutan for the most part. They're a soldier race, bred for war, and so good at it, the world government were forced to ban their gestation. This is a little way in your future. 
uh, the 51st century, if I remember correctly. Uh, my friend has asked me here because he thinks you may be mad. And you, Mr. Wells, the doctor asked in a low voice, what do you think? It was an interesting question. I think that I shouldn't be surprised to find such a beast was the outcome of centuries of scientific progress, and I've seen far stranger things in my time. Tell me, Dr. Smith, have you ever been to Carfell? But we were interrupted by a sound so loud as to knock us all to the floor. I had just enough time to see that Professor Hawkins' ears were bleeding before the air was filled with a thick, choking dust. I lay coughing for a few moments before the doctor pulled me to shelter. Our ear-anthropus wasn't alone. I saw two shapes moving in the smoke. Dead on the slab, the creatures had been in the front. In motion, they provoked only fear. They moved with the hunched, rolling motion of an ape, their heavy brows casting so much shadow their eyes could not be seen. Their faces were so nearly human, but their jaws protruded and sharp canine fangs jutted out. Each carried a bone club the size of a cricket bat and a long steel knife tucked into their belts. The professor has made a break for it, the doctor hissed. They don't seem to be interested in him. And, and what are they interested in? I asked. One of the creatures was talking in some grunting language I couldn't understand, but its intention was clear. It was gesturing at the dead specimen on the slab with some excitement. It moved to hook its arms under the specimen's shoulders and grunted again at its companion. Then it turned away to take hold of the body's feet, and in an instant they were gone. For a moment I thought they'd vanished into thin air, but then I noticed the strange way that the smoke was being pulled out of a broken window, in the wake of something moving at incalculable speed. This is worse than I imagined, the doctor intoned gravely, his eyes following the trail of smoke. If they can speed the flow of time around themselves to that degree, they must be using a more sophisticated time machine than I thought. Then he clapped his hands together and gave an impish grin. But I should be able to put something together so we can give chase. Oh, must we? I tried not to catch the doctor's eye. It is only natural to reclaim the body of a loved one, is it not? The Eanthropus have no loved ones, the doctor replied. They're bred only for war. Their dead stay where they fall and no one mourns them. If they came back for this one, we must discover why or it will be very much the worse for us. And how do you intend to do that? The same way any scientist would, he smiled. Ask questions, keep an open mind, pursue the truth. It took him less than ten minutes to cobble the machine he required. When it was finished, he held it out to me, as if expecting applause. It looked like nothing more than a brass kettle knitted out of old wires. If I failed to look impressed, the doctor gave no sign of noticing. When you move at the speeds they did, you become, to all intents and purposes, invisible, except that you ionize the air you pass through, the doctor explained, pulling an odd-looking valve from his pocket and weaving it into his kettle. This iron-focusing coil will allow us to pick up their trail, and this device should give us the same speed. In my youth, I had been an idealist, I had thought that the cynicism that had grown in me since then had 
laid rest to that younger me. But there it was, the simple desire to know what it would be like to move faster than the human eye could see. If I survived the experience, there was almost certain to be a story in it. Oh, let's follow then. The doctor smiled, the smile of a schoolboy who's found a companion willing to be dragged into a foolhardy and suicidal prank. He pulled another device from his pocket, a small golden bullet, and wired it into the kettle. This is the most important part, he assured me. A friction nullifier. Without it, we'd burst into flames before we finished our first step. Before I even got to check my balance, we were moving. We walked at such speed that we seemed to move through a tunnel made entirely of blurred light. Individual sounds hadn't the chance to make it to our ears, so instead they came at us in an eerie, booming growl. And in the midst of it all, I felt sure I saw faces keeping pace with us. Odd, inhuman faces with green, smiling eyes. Just ignore the wraiths, the doctor shouted to me. They won't bother us if we're quick. But one of the creatures was reaching out to me. Thin, bony fingers, only a quarter inch from my face. I couldn't help myself. I turned away from the doctor and looked. Despite myself, I saw something like beauty. I reached for the nearest hand. Mr. Wells? Suddenly, everything changed. The blurred tunnel, the booming sounds, the face of the wraith, all vanished in an instant, and I found myself stumbling mid-step. I managed to recover my balance by putting my hand out, finding solid and damp rock under my fingers. I was in some kind of underground cavern. Whilst the doctor was nowhere to be seen, I was not alone. A few yards away, through a jungle of stalagmites, I could see four ape creatures standing motionless. There was a quiet pop, and a few paces in front of me, the doctor suddenly appeared. He did not appear mid-step, however. Something had knocked him off balance. Something, I suspect, was my unexpected exit from our journey. And he appeared in a stumbling trip, his arms cartwheeling helplessly as he struggled to keep upright. With a single ungraceful flip, he slammed upside down and backwards into a solid wall of rock and slid unconscious to the floor. I had little choice. Keeping my eyes on the four creatures nearby, I inched around to where the doctor had fallen. Each step brought more of the picture into view. The creatures were standing outside some kind of craft, landed neatly on the edge of a precipice. It looked for all the world like a sailing ship cast in cold iron, its chain metal sails rippling in a non-existent breeze. The four creatures were gathered in a tight circle, looking down on the corpse of their fellow, naked on the ground. They were intoning something in that gruff, grunting language of theirs. I would not have been at all surprised to see the dead creature spring back to life and attack. I reached the doctor and gave him a shake. He merely moaned. It was clear that I was on my own, and whatever the creatures intended for their companion and my country, it was down to me to stop it. The doctor's fingers unclenched, and I saw the wire kettle roll gently from his grasp. Inside, the golden bullet was still glinting. I looked again at the creatures. 
bred only for war, the doctor had said, with no trace of remorse, culture or compassion. Seeing those dark shapes huddled around that corpse, I could see no reason to doubt him. I reached down and carefully prized the bullet free. I left the doctor where he'd fallen and carefully crept again towards the iron ship. Within moments, I was close enough to put my hands to its cold skin and feel the solid weight. The rockets that powered such a ship must be capable of such force. I could only begin to imagine what the creature's weapons might be like if their transport held such power. I held the doctor's anti-friction device against the ship and put my faith in Newtonian physics. I began to push the ship over the precipice. I wouldn't do that if I were you, Mr. Wills. The doctor's hand fell on my wrist and he gently pulled me back. I felt relief until I saw the look in his face. I turned quickly to the creatures, expecting to see them rising for the attack. But still they stood in that quiet circle, their heads bowed. You're still a scientist at heart, Herbert, the doctor urged. Observe, see the pattern, build your theory. I didn't quite understand, but I looked again at the huddled figures. There was something familiar about them. No, about their posture, their positions. The doctor nodded encouragement, and I tried to look again with clear eyes, to set aside all that I'd been told about them and dispassionately observe, to focus on the primary evidence and draw my conclusions. I blinked. And in that instant, I saw it. I looked to the doctor, and I could tell that he had already come to the same result. It's a funeral, I said. Creatures bred only for war, the doctor nodded. And they've learned to grieve. What else might they have learned to do? What else might they learn, given time and understanding? I think perhaps we owe them that time, don't you? The doctor reached out and plucked the golden bullet from the hide of the ship. It moved slightly against his touch, even such a delicate action provoking its own equal reaction, before friction was restored and the ship came to rest, having moved only the merest fraction of a fraction of an inch. Let's go and offer our condolences, he suggested. I followed him meekly. It took the doctor only minutes to convince the creatures of his good intentions. Despite appearances, they were trusting and open to the kindness of strangers. With concentration, he even managed to understand some of their nascent language, although I must admit it remained mere grunting to me. But the more I listened to it, the less bestial it seemed to become. With each passing moment, it seemed to soften until I could almost imagine it capable of poetry. The story the doctor relayed to me was one of outcasts and escape, the creatures having stolen their timeship with the sole intention of finding something in the universe that wasn't death and politics. Their dead comrade had been the sergeant of their regiment, the first to ask that important question. What if there is something more? He had led them into the past, and had fallen in a kind of love with the Sussex landscape. When he died, they decided to bury him there. That done, they found themselves lost again. Their hope had been to continue their explorations, but something in their ship had ceased its function 
and now they found themselves marooned. Well, the doctor said sheepishly, I'm sure there's something we can do about that. We watched the repaired ship melt into a morning haze together before the doctor announced that he too must be moving on. I made my goodbyes and remained to ponder the powerful good that could still be the result of an open and inquiring mind. Perhaps I had been guilty of the opposite, too quick to see the ill that could come with each step into the future and too unwilling to allow myself to hope. But if I ever found myself making such a mistake again, I need only think of that small corner of a Sussex field that would remain forever part of the future. Whoa!